Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. It's the cricketing labour of love that is the Hall of Fame. We're going to talk pretty batter-heavy this evening in episode 75 through 71. Baldy's got all the stats, Lippy's got all the chat, and Raj has got all the curveballs to throw to the panel. Coming up on the Top Order Podcast, Cricketing Hall of Fame. Baldy, we're at 75. It's not 100, it's not a 50, but it's somewhere in between. Who have we got in that coveted spot? Yeah, it's another Australian better at number 75 in the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame. 75 is Michael Clark. Yeah, but, nah, but, yeah, but, nah, but, yeah. He played 115 matches, 8,643 runs for Michael Clark at a batting average of 49.1. Highest score against India at the SCG of 329 not out. That was one of his 28 test centuries. 27.50, so a pretty good conversion rate. And his average above replacement player is plus 6.5, which is good for 43rd all-time. That 8,600 runs, 21st all-time, 2,800s is good enough for 15th of all time. Uh, so a pretty good player, got a decent captaincy record as well, and average near enough as makes no difference to 50 with the bat. Let's throw it open to the panel. Uh, what are your initial thoughts on Michael Clark, boys? Oh, my initial thoughts are just... Ugh. I, I, honestly, I, I, it's really weird because, uh, you know, I often have that reaction when and Australians come up, but actually, you know, as the years go by, I kind of you know, have a begrudging uh, respect for, for so many of the Australians. and But Clark is actually just someone I just never enjoyed watching at all. You know, there's just some guys, I guess, that, you know, even though you don't support their team, you can appreciate their talent. But it just never, never happened to me with Clark. I, I don't really know why. Maybe it's the fact that uh, it just always felt like he was an entitled individual. He just, he scored a Test 100 on debut. He was a, you know, a beautiful man and, and all this stuff. And I just... I just didn't care for it. How do you respond to that, Baldy? Well, you're not alone there, Stuart. A lot of players and fans of cricket in Australia and around the world uh, have never really warmed to Michael Clarke. Of course, he was probably the first one, I think, in Australia, maybe even around the world, who tried to leverage their cricket into what we would call now a personal brand. You know, there were a few players had done TV adverts. I remember the Alan Border one for Tetley's All-Rounders was an absolute horrific ad. But they'd done adverts before, but no one had really tried to leverage that into widespread, massive commercial success. And of course, Clark did. He had the Ferrari. He had the um, big home in the eastern suburbs of Sydney down near the Bondi Beach. Of course, he had a very famous, uh, well-tanned blonde girlfriend by the name of Lara Bingle of the Where the Bloody Hell Are You fame. So, you know, he had all of that kind of off-field stuff going for him. But of course, coming out of that kind of era of ocker blokeism in Australia, where it was the underdog, the battler, someone like Steve Waugh, even someone like Ricky Ponting, that Australians could really identify with, the Australian male, typical male could really identify with, not so Michael Clark. So he was a really divisive figure in Australian cricket fandom. Uh, and a lot of people just never warmed to him, Simon Kadich in particular. <laughs> Yes, uh, I guess I guess from a from a cricketing perspective is where I'm going to cover this from. Uh, as a batsman, I did actually appreciate him a lot. Actually, I, well, and I hated the short ball. And all I remember about Michael Clark is the way he played that little check pull shot. You know, you had Ricky Ponting who would do that full blooded one, but then when Clark came on the scene, it was that little check pull shot just over the infield for four. Um, that that was something that really stands in my mind. And I think that. 
when when he was in that purple patch, you know, the 2011, 2012, 2013, that kind of time, I think that he was genuinely probably the best batsman in the world for a sustained period there, where I think it was 2012, he scored like four, a triple century and three double centuries or something in the calendar year. It's incredible. Um, but yeah, I guess when you talk about it, there is, you know, as a leader, as a team man, uh, maybe there are a couple of questions there around, um, around him. But from the stats point of view, 8,600 runs, really good. His conversion rate was incredible, that 50 to 100s. I think it was 28, 2800s or 2900s and 2850, something like that. Uh, and he was also one with that big daddy 100, which is one that's, uh, it's, it's going extinct at the moment. But here's a stat for you, um, Baldy. Uh, his his average runs over 100 when he got to it was 66. So his average was 166 when he got to 100. So that that that's something that really is in his favour for me. So yeah, I liked him. I really uh, appreciated his batting prowess. Yeah, look for me. I remember the three wickets he took in that India Test match where he was obviously playing as a batter and came on and won the game for, with the ball for Australia in India with his left arm spin. After that, I just didn't like him. And look, I think you've already talked about it. For me, Ricky Ponting, Steve Waugh's a little bit of a different one because Steve Waugh was my cricketing hero. He played for my club side in the UK. I idolised Steve Waugh. Um, but I hated Ricky Ponting through the whole of his career until he, until he hung up the gloves. And then I thought, oh man, you're an absolute legend, Ricky Ponting. I love you. I would like to buy you a beer and um, sort of, you know, stroke your, you know, receding hairline because <laughs> you're just such a legend of a bloke. But Ricky, um, sorry, Michael Clark. I got carried away. Ricky Ponting there for a second. Um, Michael Clark, he just wasn't likable. There was nothing likable about him. He used Slazenger. I mean, who uses Slazenger in the 2000s? What? What well in the two thousands, Bordy? You know when it was the V one hundred with the three quarters of an inch extra blade that Mark War used, so that he could stand up a little bit more upright and whip the ball through mid wicket. Fine, but Michael Clark, no to Slazenger, no to an earring, no to leaving before the team song has been sung. Just for me, I just could not like the bloke. Sorry. Well- Oh, don't apologise. You don't have to apologise to me. I'm all for that. All for uh, that big rant. You you heard what I had to say before. But Baldy, look on a on a serious note, and, and I guess back to why we're here, the Hall of Fame. What I guess what I, when I think about Clark, I, I wonder whether people in Australia remember him as as an all timer because, you know, I, I sort of when I look back at some of the players that we've had, and and I I still think that we're going to look back at this list and really think someone like Clive Lloyd is way too low on this list. Um, But when you look at Michael Clark as an Australian, do you think that he's someone we're going to remember in 50 years' time, even though he's got such a a very impressive record? Maybe not. And I think that's a bit of a shame because he averaged 50 with a bat. He scored 8,600 runs. He has the 15th most hundreds of all time. His captaincy record's actually quite good. 24 wins, 16 losses. So, you know, he won 50% more tests than he lost. And that Australian team after Gilchrist and War and McGrath and Warren and Hayden and Langer and all those guys retired, that was a rebuilding side. There were fresh faces in there. Sure, they had Michael Hussey emerge and a few others. But, you know, that Australian side was a, was a different side in 20, 2009 to 2013 when they had some of those dysfunctional dressing room elements. 
I go back to the fact that I think Michael Clark has the best footwork to spin that I've ever seen from an Australian batter. And I think he's actually a little bit underrated as a batsman as a result. Um, I really enjoyed going back and watching him play against spin, uh, particularly against the Indians in that big hundred he got at the SCG. So he won't be he won't be remembered in, as a great against Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting because he's not as good as those guys, but he is a tremendously talented cricketer. And I think that shouldn't be forgotten in the wrap-up. Bordy, let's move on to another batter who, it's fair to say, probably wasn't universally liked amongst opponents and teammates alike. Who's at number 74? Moving along from middle order to the opening batters, it's 74 on the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame, Jeffrey Boycott from England. He played 108 tests, made 8,114 runs, opening the batting for England at an average of 47.72, a higher score in tests of 246 not out, 22 hundreds, 42 fifties, and an average above replacement player, very similar to Michael Clark's, 6.04, which is good for 44th all time. Let's talk about the wall before the wall, Jeff Boycott. Binksy, I always like to start these... Uh with sort of getting a sense of how these players are, are recognised in their own country. Uh, and I think a good place to start would be uh, from you in terms of, you know, what what did boycott mean as a as a cricketer when, when you were growing up? Yeah, look, when I was growing up, I think, to be honest, I'm, I know I'm older than you boys, but I'm not that much older than you boys. So I, he had finished playing any meaningful cricket by the time I was really watching um, test cricket. Uh, I, I remember him more from the perspective of him being a commentator and a pundit. And look, I think probably in terms of what, what I remember is when you batted slowly as an under 13 cricketer when I was um, at that age, you, you got told you were you were batting a little bit like boycott. I, I think the key thing that I would say, though, a little bit like some of the people that have been his successes in, in England cricket, he actually had the ability to score quickly. Alistair Cook, who, you know, will come on to, I'm sure, on this list. And if we don't, then um, I am going to go around to Baldy's house and, and burn it to the ground. If Alistair Cook doesn't make this list between 75 and, and zero or, or, or number one on the list. And Alistair Cook actually as a one-day player initially, had some shots and so did Boycott, including a Gillette Cup final where he went out and actually smashed the, the ball to all parts of the ground. But I think as a test cricketer, he knew what he needed to do and his currency was runs and he was going to score those runs and it didn't matter how quickly or slowly he was going to do that. And I'd also say I think he's actually a pretty decent pundit. You know, he's a parody of himself nowadays, but um, actually had some very, very good thoughts on the game. Well, he kind of had to put a massive value on his wicket because if you have a look at some of the great fast bowlers of that era, every side had at least one. Australia had two, and the West Indies had six or seven tremendous, you know, world-class, if not Hall of Fame fast bowlers. So opening the batting in that era, degree of difficulty, massive. You know, if it was a diving, it would be a 3.4, 3.5 degree of difficulty. You know, three quarters, somersault, four and a half tucks in the in the upside down position standing on your head. It's not easy to open the batting without a helmet just coming off uncovered wickets against, you know, Michael Holding and the like. So I've got tremendous respect for what he was able to do on the cricket field. And he really set the standard for a change in technique, I think, and having a more emphasis on, on technique, opening the batting or, or batting in that top order as we move forward into the 80s and 90s. 
that's a, a good point, Baldy, there around the technique, because when I was doing a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I like to listen to what other people have said about boycott, and technique was the, the one thing that just kept coming up, you know, out of the, just straight out of the handbook and all of that kind of stuff. And look, you know, I, uh, I have a lot of respect for that, valuing your wicket, and, you know, even I was not a good batter. I think, uh, you know, that's been touched on a little bit uh, on this podcast before, but, you know, I can certainly, yeah, Binksy's doing a sewing machine motion. Uh, just as we speak here but you know I loved batting for long periods and sometimes it was even more fun when you just didn't weren't were trying not to get out and so I can I can certainly appreciate that and, and Binksy mentioned the you know that he was known as a, a boring player perhaps but can you give us any sense of how boring he was Baldy in terms of his you know not from a, a, a visual perspective but in terms of how he ranks uh, in a strike rate perspective with some of the more modern players today. Yeah, he gets a lot of grief, doesn't he, for having a pretty low strike rate. His Crick Info has a list of players with 2,000-plus runs at an average of 35, and there are 222 of them um, that actually have a registered strike rate on Crick Info. Jeff Boycott's 211th, uh, just ahead of John Wright from New Zealand, um, and just below Ravi Shastri, Asanka Gurusena and B.S. Hazare from India. Um, slightly below Michael Atherton, who's 205th uh, for New Zealand pa- fans, Mark Rigger Richardson. He's got a strike rate of 37.6, and he's 201st in the list. Um, and there's, you know, there's opening bats galore down the, down the bottom here. But yeah, he's test strike rate, 35.48, is, is right down the bottom. And of course, you know, someone who we're going to come to very, very shortly up the top with 82.2. Um, in terms of a strike rate. So, yeah, he did strike slowly, but he did value his wicket in an era where fast bowling was pretty much at its peak. So you can't really blame him for that. Not a lot of opportunities to score. Yeah, and look, just to highlight that, if anyone wants to jump on YouTube, I'm sure you've seen it if you're a cricketing badger like the four of us. But the the over that Michael Holding bowled to Jeffrey Boycott is one of those apocryphal um, YouTube clips. So, you know, go and look at that to, to show the quality of bowling that he... Um, actually faced during that period and I think when you look at those stats border you, you talked about it but a batting average of 47 in that era and his first class batting average uh, close to 57 uh, you know you can't argue with those uh, numbers um, whether or not you like the bloke or not. Baldy you've already given us a little bit of a telegraph but we're going to move on to another batter at number 73 on the list who um who have we got there? Oh, I'm really looking forward to this one. Oh, let's open the taps and let's go, boys. 73 on the list. Again from England, Kevin Peterson. 104 tests, 8,181 runs at an average of 47.27. 23 superb hundreds and 35 50s. He's got an AARP of plus 4.87. Let's go. I've been looking forward to this one. This one's the one I've been looking forward to the most, I think, in this in this group of five. Who wants to go first? Well, boys, if none of you are going to go first, then then I will for sure. Look, I, I've told you this story a million times. I, I'm lucky enough to have actually played a game against this guy who um, essentially said he was going to win a game within an over, needing 24 to win, and went out and hit four sixes off the next five deliveries to actually make it happen in a game of club cricket. Hubris would be one word to describe that arrogance but brilliance would be another word. Baldy, when I looked at the write-up for this and 
probably just to give a little bit of color to the listeners of the podcast, I'm not the best for planning. I've not looked at the spreadsheet in a whole heap of detail. I don't know where these players are coming. But to see Kevin Peterson at number 73, I sent a text to Bordy today and I said to him, mate, where are other England batters in this? Is, is Kevin Peterson the highest England batsman in this list? Is there no one else to come after number 73? And Bordy assures me that there's other Englishmen that are going to appear in this list between number 73 and, and number one. I cannot bear that from an Englishman's perspective. This guy is the best England batsman that has played the game. If we talk about the impact that he's had, the 2005 Ashes, the 150 that he scored in that oval test match, when we fast forward to him playing a pivotal innings in Adelaide to win us the third test of the 2010-2011 Ashes series, which we then went on to win ultimately, um, trouncing Australia at both Melbourne and Sydney to take home the Ashes on away soil. And then to score the most brilliant 100 in India in 2012, again, which sealed the series. But Alistair Cook scoring huge runs in both of those series around those innings. But anybody who looks at those series and doesn't say that Peterson played the pivotal innings that won those key series for England, that is the kind of performance that you look for from a great cricketer. And to see him at number 73 in the list, regardless of the fact that he's from uh, South Africa, regardless of the fact that, to be honest, you know, he's probably more interested in being on dancing in ice than he is being a former cricketer right now. Um, Look, I can't, I can't bear it. He's, he's the greatest English batsman that's ever lived. 73 is a joke. <laughs> so I'm not sure who wants to follow that one, but I'll, I'll jump in there. Um, uh, yes, basically, I agree with you. I completely agree with you around the, the great batsman comment. When I think about him, he's a guy who did things that others didn't, right? When he pulled out that switch hit, um, there's numerous shots where he's just done crazy stuff, balls, two metres outside off stump, which he just whips through league side. I always loved that about Kevin Peterson. But um, but what, what, what you know resonates with me or I remember a lot about him is that he was an enigma as a person, as a teammate. Um, do you have anything about that, Baldy? Well, yeah, I think the, the story that came to mind is, is actually a basketball story. Um, and, it, and it's about uh, Isaiah Thomas uh, and a, a journalist meets Isaiah Thomas in a topless bar in, in Los Angeles, um, in Las Vegas, sorry. I won't go into the detail, but they, did, they get into a, 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 a conversation about something called The Secret. And Isaiah Thomas revealed that the secret about basketball is that it's not about basketball, right? The secret to winning an NBA championship or a championship or excelling at the highest level is it's not about the sport you play. It's about getting the most out of your teammates and getting the most out of that cohesive unit that is a cricket team. 11 guys in the cricket team, there is room for individual brilliance, right? There's no I in team. There are five eyes in individual brilliance. But I just felt like if you think about Kevin Peterson's career... I don't feel like he made his teammates better. Um, and maybe I'm being harsh on Kevin Peterson there because he is a mercurial talent. He is an incredible batter. He probably is one of the top, maybe top three or four best batsmen that England have ever produced, Adam. I agree with you there. But in terms of his overall greatness, I always felt, even though he captained England, I, even though I, he, he just... He wanted me to give us more as a leader. He could have been an incredible leader, a great leader. He was a charismatic figure. He was a great speaker. But I just I just came away feeling he just... Sometimes he divided the dressing room and I don't feel like he got 
the best out of his teammates. Am I wrong here? I don't. I don't think you're wrong at all. I mean, I also. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a great player's responsibility to lift the other players around them. I do. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. Certainly in cricket, you can. You can make that argument in in some other sports, and 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 you can in cricket as well. And and I yeah I I don't know. It's it's a one I haven't really made up my mind because cricket is such a a team game, but an individual game at the same time. I will say, uh, just Paulie, tremendous that you put him at seventy three, just purely so we could see Binksy get so excited. I think that's the most animated we've seen him uh, on the podcast. So just absolutely brilliant. While to counter Binksy's point about you know the greatest batsman of all time and all of this stuff, his record's about the exact same as Jeffrey Boycott. So, uh, do you want to finish up Binksy and kind of refute that the fact that those two have actually got very very similar records? Yeah, look. I- I don't think it's really my place to kind of hijack the Hall of Fame podcast. I'd just say, look at his strike rate. Um, and that's the big difference. And look at his impact on major series, which is the big difference. I, I think to your point around making players around him better, he probably didn't display some of those leadership qualities. The one thing I would say is one of the leadership qualities he did display was his stance towards franchise cricket and the way that the England Cricket Board and other cricket boards have now acceded to to players with their, look demands, I suppose, um, in terms of their ability to actually take their personal brand and go and monetize their cricketing brand. You know, we talked a little bit about that in Michael Clark. The other thing I would say that I've heard a lot of players talk about the way that they've looked at the way that Kevin Peterson played and trained and prepared and that's the thing that they've taken from watching him he he was the consummate professional in terms of you know it's a cliche but he was the first to get to the nets and he was the last to leave and he was the guy that made sure he was prepared to go out and perform um on the big stage but look we could do a whole podcast on him because he's a certainly enigma um a- alongside some other words that might have slightly uh, less consonants in as well and um, but let's move on to number 72 on the list. I'm absolutely buzzing to say that number 72 on the list is someone that's actually also been interviewed on the podcast as well. Yeah, from a guy who left us wanting more to another guy who left us probably wanting more out of his test career at 72 is a friend of the show, uh, Michael Hussey. 79 tests for Michael Hussey, 6,235 runs in his test career at an average of 51.52. A higher score in Brisbane against England of 195, one of his 19 test hundreds, 29 test 50s, and an average above replacement player of plus 8.43, which is just tremendous. We all loved the Mike Hussey interview. Never meet your heroes. I'm so glad we did. Who wants to open the discussion around Michael Edward Killian Hussey? I'll start. I know I know. Raj has got a question for us, but I just want to say that my, my memories of Hussey, I, I know he did have a few uh, down years, and, I, and you know, thinking back to that podcast, um, he talked about how he was under under real pressure before he scored that big hundred, uh, and there was talk about him, uh, you know, p- potentially being dropped and and uh, you know I guess not leaving Test cricket on his own terms. And and for someone who'd started it with such a, a hiss and a roar, it would have been uh, a real shame for that to have happened. But I just remember everything coming out of the middle of his bat, and I just think. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't, don't even know if he played any other shots other than the cover drive and that pull that went in front of square. It just felt like if the ball was short, he just thumped it in front of square. 
and if it was fully just smashed it through the covers. So yeah, I just and every memory I have of is just of an incredible cricket shop with him. It's actually really interesting about those down years because when you average like eighty five those first two years, there's only only down from that. But yeah, they were they were tough years for him. Uh, when I think about Mike Hussey, uh, he's a guy that I reckon if I was a captain, I'd pick him first. He'd be my first choice in a team because he's just so dependable. You know, when you think about Mike Hussey, uh, the sort of the the difference between his best performance and his worst performance was actually quite little um, all throughout his career, aside from those two years you, you mentioned there, Stu. Um, and, and also, you can put him anywhere. He opened the batting, he batted well. He batted at seven with the tail really well and filled that middle order incredibly for, for Australia for a number of years there. Um, but the question that I did want to ask is, I think that Hussey was one of those guys who was really unlucky to be around with a really strong uh, period of, of Australian cricketers at the time. Uh, looking at his numbers, if he would have a longer career by like three or four years, we could be looking at a member of the 10,000 run club, a really elite batsman. So does, does Hussey and you know the likes of Brad Hodge get a bit of a bump because of, um, because of these, uh, the, the, that strong nucleus that Australia had at that time? Oh, Brad Hodge. Oh, if only he played more tests. Look, there are there are half a dozen cricketers that could have played more tests. Even Darren Lehman, someone as great as Darren Lehman, could have played a lot more tests for Australia had he been in a different era. Um, there are lots of players who don't play for New South Wales that probably will feel themselves a little bit unlucky to miss out on test selection for Australia in the mid-90s to early 2000s. Look, I think Dave Michael Hussey, he would have definitely scored 8,000 runs, maybe even 10,000 runs, had he played 120 test matches. The key issue for me is would he have would how would he have fared in that era had he have gone through a, a form slump like he did in 29 uh, 2009 2010 would he have been dropped in in favor of another player and then had to spend two years in the wilderness before he got back into the test side who knows I think the the comp for me would be a guy like Matthew Hayden who was dropped a couple of times in in the early part of his test career because he was thrust into the test side so early but he still averaged 50 as a test cricketer and he ended up with I think 8,000 runs or something like that so you know that's the comp for me I definitely think he would have he would have succeeded because of his mental resilience and his mental strength but I think he would he would have been dropped at one or two times along the way yeah I I don't have heaps to say and that's not because of my lack of respect for Michael Hussey I've written down four things in my prep about Mike Hussey Number one was the weight that he had to play test cricket compared with some of his peers. That has got to freaking kill you when you are that good a cricketer to have to wait that long to play test cricket. Number two, I've got the fact that he was right-handed. He was right-handed and he scored 6,000 runs at an average of 51. That's mind-blowing. Absolutely, absolutely mind-blowing. Go back and listen to any interview that he's done. Go and listen to our podcast, the fact that he wanted to be left-handed because his hero was Alan Border. The bloke was actually right-handed. You know, I would give my right arm to have played test cricket. My right arm wasn't bloody good enough. This guy's right arm probably was good enough and he decided to switch bloody arms. It's ridiculous. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that that's absolutely key. He's the nicest bloke in the world that we've spoken to from a cricketing perspective. And I have to say, I didn't think it leading into it, but it's the my favourite podcast that I've ever done. That hour that we spent talking to Mike Hussey 
about cricket, about how much he loved the game of cricket. I know that, you know, his nickname is Mr. Cricket and all that kind of stuff, but this guy, absolutely legendary um, as a cricketer. Um, and use Cookerborough, what more can you say? Baldy, why don't, why don't you wrap us up uh, in terms of Mike Hussey and, and kind of just uh, sort of similar question to Clark in terms of um, he had such a, sh- I, I guess, a relatively short career. What do you think people will look back in terms of Hussey, uh, you know, very, very briefly uh, in, in 20 years' time? I think they'll remember the same thing that, that we all remember on this podcast, the cover drive, the pull in front of Square, and just the the passion that he had for Test cricket and the passion that he still has for cricket in his involvement with, um, with I think it's CSK now, I think he's involved with over in, in India, and it's no surprise that they're successful because Mike Hussey was successful, and he puts in as much mana as anyone else, I think, um, in terms of his, in terms of the way that he carries himself, never meet your heroes, guys. They're always a letdown. The only exception that proves the rule is Michael Edward Killian Hussey. Well, Baldy, I know that you have got two beautiful children. We know what the middle names of your third child, if it ever comes, um, it's going to be Edward Killian. By the sounds of things, you've um, really enjoyed rattling those off the tongue. We've got our last player on this particular podcast, and. Strange that we've got five batters in this little bracket here. So who are we going to go to at number 71? Yeah, another opening bet in the Top Water Podcast Hall of Fame at 71 from India. It's a big three focus this week, which will make Stuart um, pleased as punch. It's Verinda Sewag, uh, 104 tests also for Verinda Sewag, 8,586 runs. Man, that's a lot of test runs for an opening bet at 49.34, a highest score of 319. One of two uh, triple centuries for Verinda Sewag of his 23 centuries that he made in test cricket and an AARP average above replacement player of plus 6.17. Remarkable record. Baldy, uh, I want to jump in to start this because uh, I uh, I jumped in and started the Clark saying that it's someone I just really did not enjoy watching. Saywag was the complete opposite. I just loved uh, watching him play and just smashing it to all parts, really. You know, I, I think, um, you know, whenever I wasn't New Zealand uh, playing video games or anything growing up, it was always India just because then you could be Saywag. Tendulkar, Dravid, Ganguly, Laxman, just that batting line, it was just unbelievable. And, it, you know, even in, um, you know, in some of those earlier games in, in Shane Warne cricket, you could also, uh, you know, they, they could also bowl a little bit. Uh, it was it was just tremendous. So, yeah, he, what, what I wanted to pick up on, though, and particularly in terms of your write-up, because you talked about him as, uh, and you sent it to me yesterday, you know, who is this? And you sent me statistics for Viv Richards, and then you sent me statistics for Sewag. And Sewag is better. So why why is Sewag this low down on the list? Because I'm assuming, we haven't talked about Richards yet, so I'm assuming he might be a, a little bit higher on the list than, uh, than 71. Mm. Mm. Yeah, look, let's just cover up a couple of things before we get into the comp between uh, Verinda Sewag and Viv Richards. I mean, he did he did very much enjoy a symbiotic relationship with Rahul Dravid. And I think of all of those Indian greats, I think Sewag and Dravid complemented each other so well because 
Saywag could go out and attack knowing that he had a backup behind him, right? He knew that he had the wall behind him and he could go out and do whatever he wanted opening the batting. He could take risks. He could take on the attack knowing that he had the wall. And the wall knew that he didn't have to worry about scoring because he had guys like Saywag at the top and then he had Tendulkar behind him and Ganguly and Dravid behind him. And he didn't have to worry about that stuff. So those guys had just a wonderful symbiosis in that batting in that batting lineup. They made each other better. Um Let's have a look at those Big Daddy 100s um, for Verinda Saywag. I just want to touch on this. He's got 14 scores at 150-plus. He's got eight double hundreds, and he's got four 250-plus scores and two triple centuries. Only three other cricketers have two triple centuries. Don Bradman, of course, the great Brian Lara, and, yeah, you guessed it, Raj, it's the universe boss, Chris Gale, the only other test cricketer with multiple triple centuries. Why is he not as good as Viv Richards. Why is he at 71 and Viv Richards is somewhere in the top 30 somewhere, for instance, for a sake of the argument? Raj, did you want to come in here? Because I'm going to come back to that. Yeah, well, I've got a negative point. Um, I guess, you know, he's the one who he had those tactics around going hard, going early. Worked really well for him in, in the subcontinent. However, his numbers across the world, when you look at New Zealand, you look at England, they are a lot lower. He's averaging in the 20s in, in those two areas. But Really, what I the, the the number that really or the two numbers I guess that really stand out to me was that average uh, the average you talked about there almost fifty and that strike rate of eighty two point three whatever it was um, that's the third all time uh, in Test matches for uh, someone who's played over uh, scored a thousand runs those are two incredible stats to actually be together I find that incredible um, and his legacy for me it comes down to sort of two points and we've we kind of mentioned it already that he left a massive hole in that Indian order when you talked about you know Tendulkar, Dravid, Ganguly these guys who were greats of the game when they left there was actually people to step up into those positions they might not have been as good uh, at that time uh, Virat Kohli etc but there were people who stepped up into those positions where no one's really stepped into that Indian position for Sevag Gambier was there for a little bit uh, his numbers aren't anything to write home about but until until uh, Rohit Sharma's turned up no one's really taken that mantle up uh, as the opening batsman for India and secondly, in a country where we're talking about batting superstars like that, and we talked about all those scores that he's got, he has three out of the top four scores in the country's history, which I think is incredible as well. So even though there was a negative in there, I think I painted that fairly positively. Sorry, Baldy. Yeah, Baldy, I just want to kind of echo a couple of Raj's points. And whilst Saywag certainly went hard and, and went early, he wasn't particularly kind on opening attacks from around the world. And I think as an Indian batsman, that was the key for me in that when you think about it, Indian batsmen often been criticised about not being great against pace. You know, they're, they're very good players of spin. They can accumulate runs. The pressure that he put on opening seamers, hitting them off their length, I've heard a number of interviews, one with Jimmy Anderson, who just said he is the guy that I feared the most in terms of the fact that I've got a brand new Dukes in my hand and I know this guy's just going to go after me with a strike rate of, I think, 82 or something like that. That is just insane in terms of the way that his method actually, um, notwithstanding the fact that he does have a, a different home versus away record, we, we, you know, we know that, but ultimately... The, the way that he went after opening bowlers and really put that pressure on him. He's a pioneer of the that from a test cricket perspective. There's no one before him who's tried 
and succeeded to impose themselves on opening attacks the way that he did. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Adam. You're absolutely right, Raj. He has the highest strike rate of all time of players who've got more than 2,000 runs in Test cricket, averaging over 35. So just an incredible performer. Why isn't he higher? A lot of it has to do with that away record. If he was a master in all conditions, um, like Viv Richards was, like some of the other guys that are slightly higher on the list were, then we would be talking about Verinda Sawag as possibly one of the top 30 test cricketers of all time. It's very, very difficult to find room for everybody in the top in the top 50. I have him at 71. I think it's fair to say that this has been the most controversial set of five cricketers we've had so far on the Top Order podcast, certainly fired up. Uh, a member of the audience or two. I'm pretty happy with Verinda Sewag at 71, uh, even though his statistical record is similar to Viv. Viv was a very, very different cricketer, uh, led the probably the greatest side the world's ever seen, um, and, and there's a lot to like about his performances in a number of different ways. Um, but Verinda Sewag, let's take nothing away from his career. He was just superb. I mean, just those big daddy hundreds, uh, an unbelievable career. And you're right, he was a pioneer. He paved the way for other openers like Rohit Sharma, like David Warner to come along behind him and take those attacks uh, to the to the to the opposition in the first hour of the first day of a test match well Paul, we'll definitely let the viewers and listeners be the judge of whether that's the most controversial five certainly from my perspective ian healy languishing somewhere in the 80s because you don't value um, a pair of wicket-keeping gauntlets as high as a seamer a spinner or a batter might be something that we'll talk about when we are actually able to catch up for a beer in person over the course of the next few weeks. But guys, that does wrap up this episode of the Cricketing Hall of Fame. It's been a humdinger, I have to say. One of the most enjoyable five cricketers that we've talked about. Um, And that's not just because we've got uh, a South African, an Englishman, um, and a couple of absolute legends in that list as well. But from us at the Top Order podcast, it is good night and God bless from us here in Auckland. We'll see you very, very soon in our feed. Hope you're enjoying the World Cup. Hope you're enjoying all of our cricketing banter. Please click like and subscribe and forward on this podcast to a friend or family member. It would do us the world of good. Many thanks. We'll see you all soon. Bye-bye.